Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Chinese Cookie Monster Edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast, and we have a packed studio here in the Rational Security uh, taping skiff. We can call this a skiff. I think we can call it a skiff. This is a very it's, secure facility. It depends how secure. Yeah. Well, you do lock the door when you leave. We do lock, we lock the door, and you know, the windows, you'd have to rappel down the side yes. of Brookings to get in. We the are windows. very high up perched atop the Capitol, Washington, D.C., with your poison pepper plant in the window. <laughs> uh, high atop the Capitol on the second floor. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know that first place. That's my good friend, Ben Wittes. Hello, Ben. Hi, Shane. And joining us this week is Tamara is away at the Aspen Security Festival. Festival? No. Is it forum. a festival? Yeah, I don't know. Forum. They never invite me. I wasn't invited either, and I want to know for the record that my editor went instead of me. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. <laughs> we have but two special guests. We do have today. two special guests. Um, back again Woo-hoo! is our good friend Wells Bennett. Hello, Wells. Hey, Shane. From That's Wells. Well, thanks for having Bennett me back. Yeah. Yes. That's yeah. right. Wells yes, Bennett sir. from Seton Place Northwest. Indeed. Uh, and another special guest this week, Quinta Jurassic, who's a national security intern at Brookings. Hello, Quinta. Hello. Pleasure nice to be here. Nice to see here. you. We're glad you stopped in. Uh, we got a lot to talk about on the show this week. Uh, in our workplace segment, Obama has a plan to close Guantanamo, which may be dead or alive. The plan, not Guantanamo. Guantanamo's definitely not dead. Uh, yet. An Iraqi businessman wants to mount a private Sunni army to fight ISIS. I want a private Sunni army. Well, you can get one. I'm going to tell you where to find it. And someone near and dear to us has a new plan to fix the encryption problem. Plus, in our object lessons, Ben is going to cut someone. And we'll explain the title of this week's show. Um, so, Wells, why don't you kick us off with your wordplay? All right. Uh, I, I, as is my want, uh, when being a special guest on this <laughs> You prepare show, so well. I prepare. Better than the hosts do. I believe in preparation, which is to say I believe in reading the news. So I have two news stories here, which I think would be of interest to all all three of you. The first is a piece uh, this week from Charlie Savage of the Times called Obama's Plan for Guantanamo is Seen as Faltering. Uh, And the other one, following up on that story, is uh, by Molly O'Toole of Defense One. It's called White House in Final Stages of Plan to Close Guantanamo. Can they both be right? They're they're both right. Uh, Charlie's story... Can we combine those headlines? Is the White House in final stages of faltering plan? (laughs) Well, this was going to be the sort of word... You beat me to my wordplay, Ben, because they're... Well, this is something you know a lot about, because both stories make this point that the plan to close Guantanamo has something of an evergreen quality to it, at least if you go back to, I don't know, the inauguration of this president. There's been an executive order a uh, passionately stated commitment to closing the prison and a detention task force that explains, at least in broad contours, kind of what you would do if you wanted to move people here, try people here, what the broad steps you would need to take to do it. But what Charlie's story says is there was this bill, uh, version of the NDA with language proposed by Senator McCain that says, if you come to us with a plan, 
Congress can approve it or disapprove it, and if they approve it, we will rescind some of these noxious inbound transfer bans that have frustrated the closure of the prison in the White House's view. Uh, initially, the White House didn't like that. They said it was bad, but now apparently it's okay. And in fact, as Charlie's story says, and the Defense One story says, is now they are coming up, they are coming up with a plan. The uh, White House spokesperson said yesterday, I can confirm to you that we are coming up with a plan, and we have one in the offing, even though, as both stories say, we know what that plan is, by and large, give or take maybe the future of detention operations for things like ISIS. So is, I guess, you know, Ben, I could ask you this. A, is this news? Did we know this? Guantanamo's probably not getting closed, and there's always been a plan to close it, but it's not going to work. Or is there some, is there any there there? Well, I think you have to be Clintonian about this and say it depends what the definition of plan is. <laughs> um, so... Yes, it's news. And the reason it's news is that uh, the president has been saying for, you know, six and a half years now, I want to close Guantanamo. And Congress, uh, one of the responses from Congress has been, we can't let you close Guantanamo. You haven't even given us a plan for what you're going to do with those people. So if the plan means, if the idea of a plan means that there's, you know, some, uh, internal idea of how they're going to do this. Uh, that is not news. But the way I interpreted this was that they are now finally going to come forward uh, with a public or at least public to Congress account in some with some specificity of what exactly it is that they mean to do. And that is different. And um, the, so the look, the basic problem with closing Guantanamo as a policy objective. As you say, the president from the beginning has been passionately committed to doing this, but not so passionately committed that it's actually required, he's actually ready to do the things that you would have to do in order to do it, and specifically to spend the political capital with Congress to get it done. And so one possibility is you come before Congress with a plan at this point, and Congress says, okay, this is good enough, we'll lift the restrictions. And the other possibility, which I think is much more likely, is that you come before Congress and you give them a plan and that becomes the thing that they shoot at and they say, no, this isn't good enough. And then you're sort of right back where you started, where you have to, you know, you have to, be willing to sacrifice other interests to get this done. And I think the president, you know, much as I believe that he's very committed to doing this, he has never been willing to play the cards necessary with Congress in order to actually make it happen. And so my attitude toward all renewed plans to close Guantanamo is I'll believe it when I see it. Can you imagine a scenario in which he leaves office without closing Guantanamo? Yes. Yeah. In fact, it's hard for me to imagine a situation in which he succeeds in closing Guantanamo precisely because there's no way to do it without moving a whole bunch of detainees to the United States. And I don't see any appetite in Congress for moving those people but to the United States. But you said there States. are cards that he's not willing to play. or. I mean, the way you described it made me think, are, are, are there things that he could be willing to concede that he would have to concede on and meet them, you know, and basically grant them with, you know, the victory that they want and finally get it done in a well, way that maybe he doesn't like, but he'd still get to chalk it off. So, first of all, there are a few things you would have to do 
if you were a president who was seriously committed to closing Guantanamo. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I mean committed here not in the rhetorical sense, but committed in the way that he was committed to health care or to, you know, the Pacific Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. That well, is Iran, using the Iran as the contemporary major right. measuring state. So one thing you would have to be prepared to do is veto legislation that makes it harder. And he has not been willing to do that. So, you know, serial NDAs year after year have imposed these restrictions. And he's never said, I will not sign an NDAA that does not, that has these restrictions in it. And I'm going to veto these. And here I go. Right? Can I give you the, the, the contrary and maybe it'll happen version of that, though? I'd just love to hear your response to it. One is that, you know, I see what you're saying with this, uh, that he's always said, I will, I will veto this legislation. But then we get a statement of administration policy, and then we get down to the rubber hits the road, it's must-pass defense legislation, and you get a statement that says something along the lines of, you know, I hate these transfer restrictions, but, you know, I'll work with Congress you to get them repeated. What I call whining statements. <laughs> right. But, and so, I, I, I totally can see why you would say the political odds of that trajectory reversing in a presidential, when the presidential election cycle gets going for one thing, just go way, I mean, we know that's going to be this. However, I think what the people who believe in the president here, more at the level of rhetoric, are saying, you know what? These are the last two years. We're going to let Obama be Obama. Fine. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'm not saying he will not do this. I'm saying if you really want to close Guantanamo, you have to be prepared to veto legislation that's inconsistent with that. Number two, if you really want to close Guantanamo, uh, you're going to have to give something up in order to do it. And this is, this is your point, Shane, I think. Um, you know, this is a big card the Republicans have to play. And so what do, you know, there, at some point there's a horse trading element. You have to get them to vote to lift certain restrictions. Mm -hmm. um, how, you know, what are you going to give in order to do that? And until I hear the answer to that question, what's the Republicans' demand and is the president willing to comply with that? Is there some bargain that you can strike, I think it's largely a matter of, you know, sort of fantasy. Um, now, that said, a president who really wants to do this um, would, A, be prepared to use the veto, and B, would be prepared to make a deal to do it. And I have not seen evidence that that's the case. And as such, I think we should, until I see that, I... I would prefer to think of this as a rhetorical priority that reflects his genuine values and things that he really believes, but is not necessarily willing to take particular political risk in order to do. And by the way, I think that's right, because the most you really get out of closing Guantanamo is, you know, having uh, detentions under the same law here which is not exactly the biggest gain in the world from a rule of law point of view. So I, I, you know, as long as Obama has been in office, he has had a new plan that is faltering to combine those two headlines to close Guantanamo. And I'll treat this as that until I see reason to think otherwise. Yes, speaking of... of, of concessions that it would probably be tough for them to make, that the article refers to the comments of a Republican congressional staffer who said something along the lines of, you know, the thing we really want to know is, is what's the future of law of war detention for, say, ISIS? And this, it would be 
at least a little weird, or tough to swallow, I would think, given the rhetorical stuff surrounding Guantanamo, is like, we have ended Guantanamo, and not only have we brought al-Qaeda detention home here, but we've actually got a new framework for ISIS detention, too, which is kind of some expressing enthusiasm for lawful detention on a kind of programmatic level while trying to sort of pull it back with the, the other hand. That's something to be difficult for them to accept. Are we sort of making up an ISIS detention framework on the, pl- on the fly right now, though, in Iraq? I mean, we have Um Sayef, who's the wife of the ISIS guy that we killed on a raid in Syria, you know, there are, you know, there have been reports that we're talking about possibly filing criminal charges against her, maybe or give her back to the Iraqis. I mean, is that, you know, are we, or should we just see that as more of just an improvisational kind of move based on one person? I think both. I mean, I think we're, you know, we are definitely doing some improvisation. Um, we have a framework for that improvisation based on, you know, prior detentions of people on a sort of temporary basis like Warsami who end up in the criminal system. Right. And so there is a, a path that they're following. Uh, on the other hand, you know, all of that assumes that the numbers stay very small and you can turn the larger numbers over to the Iraqis. Uh, if you end up capturing large numbers of people, well, then you have to have some kind of Bagram or Guantanamo to put them in. We'd also and need I, some and so I think the, the question that Congress yeah. is asking here or that members are asking is a legitimate one. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, if I can weigh in here right sure. at the end. First off, I'd begin by saying that the prison at Guantanamo, I believe, has been open for essentially the entirety of my political memory as a 21-year-old. So ponder on that. But yeah. I would also Ooh, say I'm that... Yeah. I think that the Guantanamo has sort of become like the hair shirt of this administration. And this is building on what Ben said, that there's this sort of sense that we would really like to close it. It would be great if we could close it. The desire to close it is indicative of sort of our commitment to human rights and our strong belief in these democratic principles. But, oh, God, we have to keep it open because, you know, Things happen. We can't get rid of these people. It turns out now that we're holding Umsayev so that it's this sort of, you know, it's the whip and this ritual Mm -hmm. self-flagellation where we can't do anything about it one way or the other because the administration isn't willing to make compromises and yet they can't do away with it. So it's just this sort of reminder of like the failings of the administration as this great theoretical liberal light. So Quinta, I have a question. If you, if this has been uh, if you can't remember a time uh, when there was, in your political memory, in which there was no Guantanamo, which of the detainees there do you think of as sort of like an uncle whom you've known your entire <laughs> life? <laughs> I mean, is there any that you just sort of became politically aware and there was sort of like Uncle KSM? Uncle KSM. Yeah, Uncle Uncle KSM being waterboarded in the back room at Thanksgiving. That's... <laughs> No, I think I think KSM, Abu Zubaydah, are remember, the two main ones. Do you, re- do you remember with like how old you were when you first became aware that there was a Guantanamo and we used it for cold storage of of terrorist suspects? I I would have no idea, honestly. So you just have no. It's just always. Been it's there. just always been there. It's, it's I mean, like Alcatraz. I'm sort of I think in the interesting segment of the population that remembers 9-11 because it was like a big and traumatic enough event that it made an impression but was too young to remember all the stuff that happened immediately afterwards so Mm -hmm. that just sort of 
gradually like fades in to my awareness. So I couldn't, I can, obviously I remember 9-11, but I couldn't pinpoint like the moment that I became aware of Abu Zubaydah. I remember people talking about waterboarding a lot. That's pretty much all I have. Guantanamo is the triumph of experience over hope. <laughs> all right, let's move on to our next wordplay, <clears throat> um, which comes from this journalist I cannot get enough of, um, named Shane Harris for the Daily Beast. Whew, that yeah. guy. Guys I, I've never trusted that guy. The guy's cranking out, <laughs> except it's at least right half the time. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> now, this is a story I, I did this week, uh, a fascinating story about this Iraqi businessman uh, named Mudhar Shakat. And he... Um, he was an opponent of Saddam, uh, you know, sort of in, in Iraq. I guess you would say he was a businessman in exile. Uh, made a lot of money in telecommunications contracts after the regime fell. Uh, runs a, a security company that I think should be like the name of a band. It's called Babylon Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> Which I want it's like, It just feels like the Iraqi version of Blackwater. Or like an upstate New York football team. Yeah, the Babylon Eagles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but he also, he was probably, he has, he has a long history with U.S. intelligence. He was a senior uh, a person in the Iraqi National Congress working with Ahmed Chalabi. Uh, and of course, Chalabi was the guy who, you know, we... Was going to be our, you know, our conduit for intelligence, and thought he was going to become president of Iraq after this. After yeah, that, that, all that worked out really great. So he had a very colorful character. But what he's doing now is he has this idea where he uh, claims to have 1,700 former Iraqi military officers at his disposal. People who he assured me have no blood on their hands. Um, never mind that former military officers also work for ISIS right now, uh, and 10,000 men, including conscripts that he says are ready to basically go off and fight ISIS and sees this very much as a Sunni on Sunni problem. Very wary uh, of Iraqi, Iranian-backed Shiite militias, which are running large portions of the ground war right now against ISIS because the Iraqi military can't seem to actually stay in one place for very long without running the other way. Uh, and uh, wants to form a Sunni regional government and kind of temporarily sort of cleave off from Baghdad for a lot of reasons, this plan probably has very little chance of actually being implemented. But he is one of at least four Sunnis, including Sunnis in exile, who've come through Washington in the past year, hiring very prominent lobbyists in some cases, and going to the Hill and having meetings with people in the State Department, each pushing for their own Sunni solution to the ISIS problem, which in one way or another does involve getting weapons into the hands of Sunni tribesmen and trying to sort of relaunch this uh, um, uh, Sunni awakening, which, of course, was so instrumental in the surge. And, you know, I guess, I mean, I, what struck me, and I'd be curious to get your guys' impression of this, is, I mean, you know, it, what does this tell us more, that there's lots of Sunnis out there with interesting ideas about how they could solve this problem? Or is this just sort of underscore the, the extent to which there just is no solution right now for fighting ISIS? Well, to me, it underscores something else, which is that... It is hard from where we are to tell the difference between, you know, who's the Sunni uh, George Washington, yeah. right? And who's a shyster coming through Washington saying, hey, I want to build my own army. That's choice of words. <laughs> um, and, you know, which is this guy? I mean, is he, you know, the association with Chalabis certainly doesn't, you know, give you confidence. But, I mean, is there any reason to think this is 
um, somebody one should take seriously, or you know, or is this like a thousand snake oil salesmen who come through Washington trying to persuade 217 members of the House yeah. that they're the second coming of something? I mean, to me, what I what I, what I took away from him is that. He, Okay, let's just say for sake of argument, his claim to have vetted 1,700 officers and have 10,000 men were true. For the sake of argument. Which, by the way, we can't vet like 500 people to fight ISIS in Syria, so I don't know how we would actually verify his well, claim. vetting at what level, right? Yeah, <laughs> or sorry, maybe it's Yeah, I mean, there's, I guess it would be a policy question about sort of how far you wanted to sort right. of bro- broaden the lens of right, the American right. vetting program for people right. to step up and fight. Um, but, you know, look, it, I was... Deeply skeptical of this, as are other people as well who I talk to uh, who think they have their own great ideas for solving the problem. But you're talking about somebody who um, was not living in Iraq, uh, you know, claims that he has these connections and represents a political movement of a million people in Iraq. It's not a political movement anyone's ever heard of. You won't find any articles about it. Um, you know, he lives in a 10,000 square foot mansion, palatial estate outside London when he's not living in Lebanon. Uh, he shuttles back and forth to Erbil, which is you know, in the relatively safe northern part of the country. So, yeah, I mean, it, very skeptical. Whereas there are other people who, um, another guy who's lobbyist in Washington. By the way, a lot of their lobbyists are ex-CIA. That's something to keep in mind. It's very interesting. Or their spokespersons. Uh, another guy who's a prominent, uh, very prominent uh, uh, tribal leader, a sheikh from western Iraq. Um, who has the commitment from the Anbar Tribal Council to work with him on a training program. So, I mean, everyone has their varying degrees of credibility, but, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I don't know that this Congress or this administration is really going to be in the mood for saying, great, let's let's, let's just ship a bunch of weapons um, to the Sunni and let them sort it out. I mean, the sort of the grand dream, I guess, that they're all expressing of having a Sunni awakening part two is lacking one very important ingredient, which is U.S. forces on the ground to coordinate with them. And when we had our people on the ground and could go out and meet those people and pay them off and coordinate with them, I think it worked a lot better. And I just you're talking about now sort of having an element of a leap of faith involved here that one of these guys could actually feel the militia that then, oh, by the way, would not go into the Shiite areas and start hanging people from lampposts. Yeah, without, yeah, I mean, without counterinsurgency to help you out, it looks, it feels a lot more like a Chalabi too. Yeah, it feels a lot like that. The yeah. term awakening also implies that, you know, somebody's alarm clock went off and they just kind of got up themselves. Yeah. That actually diminishes the role of David Petraeus, yeah, right? Absolutely. You know, which it was really more of a Sunni shaken awake yeah. kind of thing. And, and the smell uh, of money. Yeah, right. a little bit. Yeah. And it is about, I mean, I guess, so this guy says he has all of the people and the material and the right. political support. Right. So yeah. this is about, this is not actually, this is mostly, or how much about it is just about American money? It's interesting. I asked that question. I said, you know, are you pushing for legislation from the Congress to fund this, which of course I don't think he would get. And he said, no, 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 we just sort of want backers for this idea. The kicker here is that I think what they want is they want the Americans to bless a plan whereby the Saudis and the Emiratis would provide the weapons or agree to sell them. And, you know, they're just sort of in Washington sort of trying to marshal political backing and support for their idea. But there are other people, including that Sheikh I mentioned earlier, who's also meeting with the same people on the Hill. Uh, So there there are lots of folks going through these offices right now kind of competing for attention. And I don't get any strong sense from lawmakers or congressional staff that they're taking any one of them particularly seriously. Uh, But we'll see how bad it gets. The cynic in me is teleported back to, I think, Dale Bumper's defending Bill Clinton 
uh, in the Senate when he said, I think he was quoting Mencken, who said, you know, when they say it's not about money, it's about money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, ben, let's move on to your object lesson. You know somebody with a great plan for the encryption problem. It's true. You know, um, I have been <laughs> following the Shane Harris best practices of using my own work as my, uh, my uh, wordplay. And in this case, I, I've been spent the last couple weeks um, working uh, with the lovely and talented Zoe Bedell, uh, one of our, our Lawfare student contributors, uh, looking into the question that Sheldon Whitehouse, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, posed to uh, Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates, which is, if tech companies do not maintain the ability to decrypt communications uh, using, say, you know, phones or uh, devices, and the FBI goes dark as a result, uh, could you hold those companies liable for damages if you were the victim of a crime or a terrorist attack that took place partly as a result uh, of um, the FBI's being unable to listen to communications? Now, this is a question that is, from the tech company's point of view, uh, exceedingly un-PC. Um, because they regard themselves, and quite reasonably, as providing security goods to their users, and they're certainly not trying to help out terrorists when they do it. But um, I thought it was interesting that Yates, uh, when posed this question, her response was basically that the Justice Department hadn't even done an analysis of this question, oh. and she didn't know whether a court would regard there as, you know, being liability in that situation. So Zoe and I have spent uh, a couple of weeks uh, thinking about this question, and it turns out to be really interesting and really open. That is, um, there's a lot of strong defenses on the part of the companies, but there's also a big set of open-ended questions about what, what duties they may have to uh, keep their products uh, relatively safe. Um, and uh, so I, I, we posted the first part of an analysis of this question on Lawfare the other day. Um, and we are starting to work on a very weird corner of the question, which is whether the civil remedies provisions of an anti-terrorism law that would that creates liability for aiding an act of terrorism could provide a basis for liability for a company that had provided the encryption through which was then used in a terrorist attack. And while we are still doing this analysis, I, I think it's fair to say the companies may be in a less safe position than some of them seem to think they are. So this is how they're going to, <clears throat> once again, get you trolled by like every privacy and civil liberties person out there. Or they're going to give you a big thank you because you may have just alerted them to a potential liability that they're facing. So I've, I've had no... Um, I mean, there, there's lots of people who think the question is self-answering 
in that the companies are immune. But I actually don't think that's an obvious point, and I'm certainly not endorsing any of these theories of liability, i.e., the companies should be liable in these circumstances. Um, I don't really know what I think, and I certainly think in many, it obviously depends on the, the precise facts of the case, which haven't, haven't happened yet, right? You, but, can under, you can see from the, like the general counsel's perspective that the companies, putting aside, I think maybe the, the traditional viewpoints about sort of privacy and security, just putting those aside for a minute, you could see them being pretty bummed about if they felt that with the coming of the encryption discussion or the rebooting of that discussion and that coming online, they probably were starting to feel good, pretty good about mitigating in technology whatever tort, uh, helping to mitigate some tort liability that was on the data breach side of the house. I mean, you have a lot more data moving around, you have a lot more safe, and there is a, a big sort of an incipient move in the Federal Trade Commission, anyway, to start suing people behind this stuff. And I think that dynamic is really changing after the OPM. But you could see them being pretty upset about having maybe not nipped that problem in the bud, but made some good headway there. And then along comes a terrorism problem. Someone right. gets shot, and then they turn and they say, well, what do you want from us? So it's a really, it's a really interesting, I mean, so here's, here's a, an interesting corner of it that I think is really interesting. So one of the company's obvious defenses is, hey, we're not, aiding any particular terrorist. We're making a general security service available to the public in general. Um, and we're doing that so that people can protect themselves and we don't knowingly help any terrorist. Right? But what about the situation in which the FBI comes to them and says, hey, Quinta Jurassic, uh, we have probable cause that she's a terrorist and she's plotting something. And um, Please give us all her communications. And the carrier comes back and says, we can't do that because it's, it's carried in a fully encrypted form that we, don't, we can't decrypt. Well, from that moment on, they have a name and a, and a finding of probable cause by a court that a particular user is, in fact, using their system for terrorist purposes. Um, so they are, at that moment, to the extent they continue to provide the service, providing that person a knowingly providing that person a specific service that uh, it's an interesting question. Why does that not well, fall under the material support statute? Well, certainly the government, I don't know if they can do this under the Federal Tort Claims Act, but if, if uh, surviving plaintiffs after an attack of some stripe do proceed against the feds and some sort of failure to train, failure to get it right, whatever theory, they're going to turn around and say, hey, we did have a warrant for a particular person. Right. So I don't think, I don't think the suit is against the feds. I think Correct. the suit is against the carrier. Yeah. Well, without, so without having anyone to sue, they'd, presume, they'd sue the feds and the feds would turn around and say, no, 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 this is not on us. We had a warrant for a particular person. It identified that person. We knew where their data was. And then a tech company said, sorry. So just to clarify, so is the argument that if it turns out I'm texting someone who's affiliated with ISIS in Syria and the feds can't get the data is, say, because I have an iPhone, so is Apple, are you saying Apple then is liable if I blow something up in my case, or does that knowledge that I am using encryption on my iPhone to talk to people in Syria 
does that mean that Apple sort of knows in the abstract that other people might be using the same technology on the iPhone in general, or is it only in the specific case? Right. So I think there's there's three situations that are probably analytically distinct, right? So one is you, you're providing encryption in general. You probably know in theory that that somebody's using it for bad stuff, but you have no specific information that your service uh, is being misused. Um, but yeah, like any service, you know that somebody's probably misusing it because you have a lot of users. Um, I think it would be very hard to argue that there's liability in that situation. The second situation is the situation we're in right now, whereas where law enforcement has come forward and said, hey, we have a problem with terrorists using the encrypted services uh, for end-to-end -end communications inside the United States, and we think there are going to be bodies if we don't do something about that. So now you have a general statement that there's a general problem with your service, but you don't have a specific name to attach. That strikes me as a, you know, a much closer question, right? Um, and one that that is a little bit of a head scratcher as to what, what your duty is in that situation. The third situation is where the FBI comes forward and says, "Hey, Quinta Jurassic terrorist." Here's the probable cause order from, you know, U.S. District Court for the blah, blah, blah. And you say, we can't do it. We can't comply with that order technically. But you keep providing Quinta Jurassic the service. Then I think it's not at all clear why you shouldn't be, you know, you know liable for something terrible that she does using that service. And so I think, I think if you play out the factual hypotheticals at different points, they point to very different litigations. And I think the companies may be underestimating how bad some of those fact patterns might look to a jury. All right. <clears throat> so when's part two? And it's coming pretty soon. Okay. All right. Well, we'll see. I still think you're, I think you're going to, I think you're going to get majorly trolled for this one. You know, as I say, we don't endorse any of the theories of liability. So I think I'm doing the companies a big favor, not to mention the ambulance chasers a big favor. That's true. Um, by, by just pointing out where the, where the uh, pivot points in this conversation are going to be. Um, so let's uh, go on to object lessons. Um, Wells, you have a very small yellow child. Yeah, I do. Oh, wait, that's uh, not a child. No, it's, a, it's actually a tiger. Oh, it's a, a tiger. Small tiger. Uh, in keeping with my uh, past practice from other guest slats on this show, uh, is this I grab, a family relic? This is a family. Well, it's not a relic. It's 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 uh, of uh, very very recent vintage, oh. which is to say, this is uh, Daniel Tiger. Uh, oh. He was a gift given to my two and a half year old daughter. Uh, he uh, um, he's part of the sort of series of things I brought on the show that have nothing to do with anything. Mm -hmm. Other than that I found them, and here they are. Uh, <laughs> and so you're interested in security? I am. I'm interested in security. <laughs> and you're rational. That's why I brought this small tiger who talks. I don't know if you'll be able to hear him. I can't remember how you activate him. Wait a minute. Is it... Wasn't that horrific? Yeah. Wasn't that horrific? Hi, neighbor. It's me, Daniel Tiger. See? Daniel... Your plan for encryption sounds great. Daniel Tiger <laughs> is a tiger who, he lives in the land of make-believe. He's actually the, in 
his animated, more sort of day-to-day life, uh, he's the main character in Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, which is the sort of animated and updated descendant of, da- of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Oh. So all the fun... The animals took over? No, it's not like it children, Mr. Not like children in the corner. I just want to point out that Mr. Rogers is to me what Guantanamo is to Quinta. I, I have no... It remind, have he reminds no, you of waterboarding. I have, no, I have no political memory of a moment yeah. in which Mr. Rogers wasn't on television. Yeah. Um, anyway, so some people got together and made this sort of show for kids based on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, but with animated characters, and it's been really successful. I, uh, I'm not a huge kids show person, and if you're having two of them, if you have small children, you get a lot of kids shows, and a lot of them are not fun. But Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood is pretty good. Very straightforward plots. Very sort of you know, uh, they kind of stress uh, very uh, basic themes and morality and other things. Um, Any detention? Yeah, a little bit. Some targeted killing. There's also they got some cool stuff on uh, kind of like how we how we think about privacy too that I really enjoy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood like our neighborhood? At all? <laughs> you know, you mean like the neighborhood that we? You mean like yeah, like ours? A little bit. You know, what I mean like it's got you know. Yeah, Daniel has this weapons grade Italian restaurant like right on there. Nice. Everybody awesome. knows each other on the block. Yeah, it's good. It's idyllic. Yeah, I love it. Anyway, um, that's my object lesson. I can't. Um, here, I'll I'll let Daniel say one more thing and then then I'll. You want to make believe with me? Okay. I make believe for a living. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shane Shane's a journalist, so yes. <laughs> Oh, now he's playing a theme song. <laughs> Just awesome. <laughs> now, if you are a producer of uh, Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, uh, consider yourself having been promoted on That's right. security and send check or money order to <laughs> yeah. spaghetti on the wall <laughs> production. That's right. <laughs> All right. Uh, ben, what is your object? My object lesson is this knife. And I want to tell you, I had bad experiences with airplanes in the last week. Um, but I'm, And they've made me think about this knife. Because this knife is in my office. Uh, it's, you know, it, because I can't take it on an airplane. And whenever I forget that, I always carry around a knife in my bag uh, for, you know, uh, Reasons of you never know when you're going to have to cut a piece of fruit or something. Sure. And, or, or, um, that, or, yeah, or especially tough piece of fruit. And yeah. um, the size of the but knife. several times I have soldier of fortune fruit will be cut. <laughs> <laughs> I have gone through um, TSA checkpoints and had my poor knives seized, and um, and so I came back from this very bad experience on United Airlines uh, last week uh, and found my knife in my office where I had this time remembered to take it out. And I immediately had an idea for a business to make uh, airplane travel better for people who carry knives or other items that they don't let you bring in your carry-on bag, but that you've forgotten to check, which is, okay, it wouldn't work for liquids or things that TSA thought were bombs, but if they find you, you know, with a knife, uh, there should be a place where you can put the knife or whatever, you know, the, um, the, the straight razor um, that has your, your flight on it, um, you know, an envelope that's, you know, flight 603 United, and you drop it in there, and they will cinch it up and put it in a nice secure 
bag as a single piece of checked luggage. And then when you get For $100. off the plane, yeah, you can you pay some sort of fine so that you don't lose the thing. And there's one piece of checked luggage that is all the stuff that you're not allowed to have in your hand when you get on the flight. And I, I'm sure United Airlines could put this service together, as could Delta, and think how many people um, they would help. Uh, I've lost probably three or four good knives getting on planes, and I've only just learned to remember to take them out. And once, here's the part that really burned me up. I um, go through, and this lovely uh, TSA security woman sees the knife on the thing and asks me to whether there's a knife in there, and I say, oh, yes. And oh, I, yes, And I, I take it out and hand it to her, um, and she says, you know, you can't bring this on. I said, yeah, I know. She said, wow, it's a really nice knife. And I said, do you want it? Um, because I'm just going to have to. And she said, I'm not allowed to. Um, and so I could not even give my my knife that was being taken away by TSA to the TSA woman who coveted it. And I think that is a crime against humanity. You probably want to game out. I mean, the devil's in the details there, right? I mean, you could... Well, we're talking about unintended consequences and negligence liability <laughs> for companies. You know, I mean, it's a private contractor. I mean, you could see, you know, there's this guy in Baghdad International with a stack of machetes, and they go, "What are you doing, buddy?" He's like, "Oh, this guy checks some wood." <laughs> no, no. So I, 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 so I think I, I think the rule would be anything that you're allowed to put in checked luggage, but you're not allowed to put check through, but you're not allowed to put through carry on, you can put in this. So. Um, you know, it's and it, there's clearly some size limit because, um, but you know, it's just for that those things you forget to take out of your bag that they seize. It's a huge number of things every day, and there should be some mechanism. When you have like the normal size toothpaste or deodorant things, like too big, a little bit. Or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. If if it's if you're allowed to put it in your checked luggage you should be allowed to put it in this particular singular piece of checked luggage after the checkpoint, and you get it back when you leave, um, you know, you get it back at baggage claim. Yeah, I'm, I'm concerned about what happens when the bag doesn't show up at baggage claim, and then there's just a missing, like, suitcase of knives yeah. floating Pepper around. Sprays. I, I think, you know, United uh, would have good reason to keep good track of that yeah. particular bag. They could charge a lot for it. Um, <clears throat> in my object lesson, <clears throat> which gets to the title of our show, this is a um, pack <laughs> of Oreo double stuff cookies. There are three cookies nice. in this. Much better. Superior to the single stuff. Yeah. And I was um, just given these cookies this afternoon, we're talking on a Thursday, by the Assistant Director for Counterintelligence at the FBI, uh, who, along with two senior members of his staff, had a rare on-the-record briefing with about 25 reporters. Did he give all of them cookies? We all got cookies. Uh, announcing their uh, new push to educate uh, um, businesses about the risk of industrial espionage uh, and corporate espionage, economic espionage, whatever you want to call it. Basically what it comes down to, and they made it sort of repeatedly, is the risk of Chinese people stealing your shit and the Chinese government taking it. And these cookies were not just to get us to be nice and behave and go to sleep. Um, they actually used these to illustrate a point, which I thought was very effective. Um, one of the uh, guys who uh, sort of was the manager, has been the manager of this big effort, said, does anybody know why the filling in Oreos is so white? Why it is this sort of blinding white color? 
And apparently it's because they use titanium oxide to color it that way. And titanium oxide is what makes your shirts very white. It's what makes um, uh, different other kinds of food and, 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 and um, uh, plastics even very white. Uh, apparently it's not completely unhealthy or lethal, at least in Oreo doses. Um, but there was an actual case of a Chinese uh, intelligence uh, operation or backed by Chinese government stealing the recipes for titanium oxide. And so it was this like vivid example of, you know, these Chinese spies are stealing the Your secret Oreos. to Oreos. They are the Chinese cookie monsters. Um, and it was it was a really effective uh, example. And I'm sitting here thinking, looking around, and I'm like, we're in a huge conference room in the J. Edgar Hoover building, and you guys are talking on the record. Did they feed you? The it was sort of, wild. Did it they was... feed you the standard line about how, like, look, when, when we sort of do things of this nature, we don't do it to advantage any particular cookie manufacturer of our own. Right. We do you it know? for national security. We do it for purposes. <laughs> right. <laughs> to, they, they, to their credit, they did not. They stuck simply with their job at hand, which was to like, we are counterintelligence. We are not policy people. Uh, we're catching spies. We're not spying. Um, <clears throat> but they also have this uh, fairly slick 38 or 39-minute um, movie, a short film that they produced called The Company Man, based on a real case of Chinese espionage against a, um, I'm blanking now, it was a, oh, an insulation manufacturer. And they picked this mundane example to show that it's not just weapon systems and high-tech things that the Chinese are targeting. And, you know, not to pick on China, but, like, that is all they talked about was China. Uh, they said that they have uh, seen a 53% increase in their caseload in the past year, and they did this. The FBI did a survey. They told us of 165 companies, uh, and 95% of them said, in their view, China was the number one industrial espionage threat. So all of this is coming at a very interesting time. When, uh, as I reported uh, earlier this week, um, the Obama administration officials have privately conceded that China is behind the OPM hack, but will not say it publicly. Can I ask you about that? Yeah. Haven't in the past we've? Well, I guess why not? Why they, not say it? Why not say what we all know to be true? Right. It's a number of factors, one of which, which I find a little hard to believe, is that there is some concern by the intelligence community about exposing sources and methods because they think that if they come out and say that we know it's China, there'll be a push to reveal how they know it's China the same way there was with North Korea and the Sony case, and they'll start having to talk about sources and methods. But it's also, you know, President Xi is coming in September. We were just in the final stages of a nuclear deal with Iran, of which China was a major negotiating partner. Um, I think that also there's a sense that this is espionage, nation-on-nation espionage. This is not economic espionage. This is stuff that we do. (laughs) And it would be a little hard for us to come out and pitch a fit and potentially sanction the Chinese for doing stuff that Jim Clapper himself said when he unofficially acknowledged it was China that he wished he'd done to the Chinese. Yeah. Yeah. And said, boy, I wish we'd done that, essentially. So, but, but from the FBI's perspective, you know, they, they made a point of saying, you know, we rarely ever do briefings like this with our counterintelligence officials. Uh, uh, the, the director of national counterintelligence was there. It was all these senior guys. And they took it to China. They have no compunction about talking about Chinese spying on America and so giving ba- us Oreos. So basically, you can do a, a sort of a cookie distribution and totally candid operation at that level. But at the highest levels, it's a big deal. Yeah. I just want to point out that Obama doesn't give out Oreos. He doesn't? Well, what do you get, like M&M's? Oh, you know what, not at press conferences. Yeah. I think he gives out apples to people. Well, let's, let's wrap up and eat the cookies. Yeah, we're going to totally eat these cookies sake. right now, these delicious non-stolen cookies. 
Um, that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to all of our other great shows at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can follow Rational Security at R-A-T-L Security on Twitter. Um, when you don't, when you subscribe to the podcast, be sure to leave us a rating and some comments. Let us know how we're doing. Tell other people uh, about the show. Spread the word, please. Uh, the show is edited, as always, by Jen Howell. The music was performed this week by Daniel Tiger and the Guantanamo Jam. That's a good name, right? <laughs> how, about, a, how about Daniel Tiger and the Stolen Oreo? And the Stolen <laughs> Daniel Tiger and the Cookie Monster. Mm, yeah. No, of course not. Our music was performed, as always, by Sophia Yan, who is in China, but not stealing anybody's titanium oxide recipes. As we know not that we know of. <laughs> On behalf of myself, I'm Shane Harris. I want to thank Ben Wittes, Wells Bennett, and Quinta Dressick for being here. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.